Today on ORP, Steve and I are going to dive into a beloved franchise of mine, Lethal Weapon, on its 36th anniversary of the first film's release in 1987. We're going to talk about all four Lethal Weapon films uh, that spanned 11 years from 1987 uh, to Lethal Weapon 4 in 1998 in a two-part episode. We will not be discussing the Lethal Weapon TV series that ran on Fox from 2016 to 2019. Uh, put quite simply, if it's not Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, I'm just not interested. I have never seen the series and I likely won't. I'm sorry if that's a bummer, uh, but in this episode, uh, we will be covering Lethal Weapon from 1987 and Lethal Weapon 2 from 1989. But before we dive into the first film, did you have anything you wanted to say about Lethal Weapon, Steve? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on this one. Uh, Lethal Weapon is Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, and this is not a series that you could substitute or update with much success, especially not without actors of that caliber. Maybe I'm too old for this. <laughs> but seriously, the, the, the success of Lethal Weapon also owes a lot to Richard Donner. And anyone who knows of my love for Superman the movie can tell you how much I respect Donner as a director. Um, although Lethal Weapon may not have invented the buddy cop film, it absolutely is the prime example of what a buddy cop film should be. It's got that mixture of detective work, high-octane action, and comedy that flows from the odd couple relationship between Martin Riggs and Roger Murtaugh. So let's talk about how we found the series. Um, I will say I didn't come into Lethal Weapon until like my mid to late teens or so. Uh, the first movie came out when I was fairly young and I wasn't allowed to see it. But I eventually did get into the Lethal Weapon films when I got older, and I enjoyed what they involved into. But honestly, there was a long period of years where I just hadn't rewatched them, and I forgot a lot of what happened beyond a few details here and there. So rewatching them now is in many ways like seeing them for the first time, and I gained a new appreciation for them after watching all the movies again. But how about you, Mike? Uh, when did you become a Lethal Weapon fan? Um, well... I will answer that. First, I just want to say I, I think that's very cool that you, you got re reinvigorated about the, the series after rewatching it. That is very nice. Um, I have been a fan of Lethal Weapon since I was about 11 or 12. Uh, well, my father did not like uh, 3, and I don't even know if he watched 4. Uh, we did watch the first and second film many times when I lived at home. I honestly can't count the amount of times I have had a Lethal Weapon marathon as an adult, uh, but it's got to be somewhere around a dozen. Uh, Lethal Weapon, in my opinion, is the definitive American buddy cop movie. Sure, there had been other buddy cop movies uh, that came out before with mismatched pairs of cops forced to work together, and they had established a lot of the tropes to make that make up the buddy cop genre. But I think 1987's Lethal Weapon really solidified those tropes into a, to a single very awesome movie, and I really set the stage for the buddy cop films to come. Basically, after Shane Black's Lethal Weapon, weapon the game had changed uh but speaking of shane black uh why don't you tell us about the writing process for the lethal weapons team sure thing uh the idea originated with shane black who wanted to do an urban western originally 
And I could kind of see where he was coming from. Um, he wanted to do a story about a dirty, hairy style cop who was brought in to do the kind of job that nobody else can do. And honestly, Riggs has a very dirty, hairy vibe to him. Um, an unorthodox cop who can get bloody when he needs to. Uh, Black wanted the main characters to be regular cops. Uh, quotes, uh, guys shuffling in a town like Los Angeles searching for something noble as justice when they're just in guys in wash and worn suits seeking a paycheck, unquote. Apparently, Black has said that the original draft of the script he wrote it was even darker than the movie we got, which is saying something because the original Lethal Weapon is easily the darkest movie of the four by far. Um, there was even going to be a hot octane end chase in L.A. with cocaine snowing all over from the truck as, after Riggs kills uh, General, General Roman McAllister. But Black <laughs> really hated that draft, and he threw out the, what he wrote and did another version of the script. I actually read that scene about that scene. Actually, uh, Joshua fires a napalm missile at a helicopter, and it crashes into the Hollywood sign, and the whole thing goes up in fire. Uh, but the 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 greatest part would have been cocaine raining down on the Hollywood sign in the eighties, when basically everyone was strung out on coke. I mean, it's a bit on the nose, but I like it. <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, I, I don't think it would have been that bad either. Uh, it reminds me a little of the ending of Real Genius, which destroyed a house and showered the entire area with popcorn. But while I don't think it wouldn't have necessarily have worked, though it might have increased production costs to do it that way. Uh, crashing a helicopter, uh, shooting a rocket launcher, crashing a truck and raining down powder. Uh, yeah, I can see that that being an expense that might have made the scene not necessary, even if it was pretty cool. Uh, but now that the script was initially written, how did the approval process go on the script, Steve? As it turned out, the process for approval uh, took a while. Uh, Shane Black shopped the script around at several places until it arrived at WB. Uh, WB executive Mark Cannon liked what he saw. And then he brought in producer Joel Silver. Um, Silver was the one who brought in Richard Donner. Um, however, Donner felt like the script was much too dark, no matter how many drafts Black did to lighten it up. So uh, Richard Donner brought in Jeffrey Bohm to do some rewrites on it. Apparently, Riggs was even crazier and even more over the top before the rewrites. Um, in the school shooter scene, Riggs took him down originally with a rocket launcher. I mean, as it was, killing the shooter with his pistol was hardcore enough, but using a stinger is seriously overkill even for Riggs. So Bones uh, toned those scenes down, and he also added humor into the script, uh, setting the tone for what the series would become later. Oh, black scene um, where where Riggs kills the sniper also originally showed one of the kids getting hauled off in a gurney, and and that actually seemed to get Riggs' attention since he was about to leave. So it would seem it was almost like he was taking vengeance on on behalf of the children for killing the kids. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, the whole scene was cut from the theatrical version for being too dark. In fact, all of Shane Black's graphic scenes were were, were more bloody than we what we got in the film. Uh, two other scenes were cut, even from the director's cut, and that was the original intro to Riggs and the ending for the film. Uh, the alternate opening featured Martin Riggs drinking alone in a bar where he is accosted by a couple of thugs who want his money. Riggs claims all of his money is in the bank and tells the thugs not to fuck with him. The thugs attack him, but Riggs easily subdues them. He is then allowed to take a free bottle of booze from the bar in exchange that he never <laughs> returns. Uh, Richard Donner felt the movie should open with a brighter look at Riggs. 
<laughs> and really we're talking just a little brighter <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the film and and and, and they, they actually filmed the scene uh with Riggs awakening in his in his trailer to replace it uh the alternate ending featured Riggs and Murtaugh saying goodbye to one another as if they weren't going to be partners anymore and and Murtaugh tells Riggs that he's thinking of retiring but but Riggs tells him not to do it no, that does sound like something Riggs would tell him, and he's not wrong. I mean, Murtaugh's a good cop, and he still had many more years left in him. But he sticks around for several more films, so they must have had that conversation already. <laughs> and Murtaugh must have eventually listened to him. Um, anyway, uh, one other notable point is that the idea for that Shadow Company was Shane Black's. In fact, before writing Lethal Weapon, Black came up with a zombie action horror story called Shadow Company, though it was never made into a film. But the Shadow Company idea got reworked by Black and the Lethal Weapon, and they became the villains of the first film. I really like the name, and it sounds like what a group of rogue CIA operatives might call themselves. But let's talk about our favorite scenes. I mean, there's so many great scenes and lines in this movie that it's hard to pick just one. But I really love the scene where Murtaugh sends Riggs up to bring down that guy who's threatening to jump off a building. I mean, that's interesting because you don't know at first which way is this going to go down. Riggs was pretty close to eating a bullet himself at one point. But Riggs being Riggs, he finds a way to save the guy in his usual crazy fashion, handcuffing the dude, and then jumping down safely to the landing below. I mean, it's such a great scene that is both funny and establishes Riggs as a character. He's not going to let anyone else die, but he's willing to stretch the rules to get the job done. Um, how about you, Mike? Uh, any other scenes that really grabbed you that you want to mention? Oh, there, there are many great ones, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I want to mention uh, the attempted uh, suicide with Riggs. Uh, that was just poignant and powerful and really establishes the very visceral agony and despair that Riggs was dealing with. Uh, I loved when Riggs shot the happy face into the target paper showing up Roger. Um, but I think my favorite scene actually has to do with the very first time Riggs and Murtaugh ever actually meet each other. Uh, Riggs is just sitting there bored, leaning up to the desk, and he happens to catch Roger's eye. And my guess is based on Roger's reactions that uh, Roger uh, was suspicious of him. That's why he was sitting there staring at him. But anyway, Riggs takes out his gun and Roger freaks right out, yells gun and starts charging at Riggs to take him down. But Riggs just quickly tosses him on the floor and has his gun pointed at Roger. Right about this time, the other detective walks up and says, meet your new partner, Roger. (laughs) Oh man, that is the perfect way to set up a meeting between our two heroes. I mean, we as the audience obviously know it's Riggs, but Murtaugh doesn't and Riggs really looks out of place in that scene. I mean, the shooting rage scene is a classic and I still love it. But we haven't really yet talked about what the original movie is. I mean, it's totally totally much different than the sequels, but we'll get into that. So, Mike, why don't you tell us about what the story is before we get into why it works? Oh, Lethal Weapon is beautifully written. I, I particularly love the very natural feel to the scenes in the dialogue. Establishing scenes are used for multiple purposes, like the gun range breakdown of the night that Amanda Hunsacker died. Uh, that furthered the plot, showed them working together on a case, and bonding over spending time at the range together. But it does even more than that. That gun range scene makes you believe in the shots that Murtaugh and Riggs make later. That is how you drop an info in a story if at all possible. You have multiple things going on in a scene as far as storytelling goes. Also, it was a brilliant to place the story during Christmas to really lean into that emotional distress of Riggs being without his family. These times more than others when family is supposed to be together would be particularly brutal for Riggs when he's already about to crack. 
Yeah, I agree with you about how elegantly written the first film is. I mean, one thing I really appreciated is that we get very good establishing scenes with Riggs and Murtaugh on their own before the movie brings them together. Hardly these scenes are designed to show uh, each cop's policing style. Uh, Riggs is a risk taker and a maverick who lives alone, while Murtaugh is the by-the-book family man. So by the time the two of them meet, we know exactly who they are and the sparks fly immediately. Uh, that sets the tone for their relationship and they start to learn from each other too. Everything about this movie is about who the characters are, even if the story itself is a detective story. Uh, the story itself even reflects uh, Riggs and Murtaugh, I mean, with villains that perfectly contrast them while fitting together nicely. Oh, that was a great way to establish the characters. And that is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say that I pick up storytelling ideas from movies. That is, in my opinion, a textbook way to do that for any writers that might be listening and interested. Uh, but let's get into the casting for Lethal Weapon, as you said. There were a few very key roles in the film. Uh, the most obvious were, were Sergeant Martin Riggs and Sergeant Roger uh, Murtaugh. Uh, but Equally important, in my opinion, is the Murtaugh family. And they were all perfectly cast, in my opinion. Darlene Love as Roger's wife, Trish Murtaugh. Tracy Wolf as and Trish and Roger's oldest, Rianne. Uh, Damon Hines played their middle child, Nick. And Ebony Smith played the adorable youngest Murtaugh, Carrie. The Murtaugh family is essential in the franchise and always plays a role in the story. But the character of Roger is dependent on having a believable and lived-in family, and I think they totally pull that off. In the scenes with the Murtaugh family, I genuinely feel that I've entered a real home with real people. Their relationships and chemistry was just perfect. Trish and Roger come across as having a loving marriage and a close family, all because of the performances and chemistry of Darlene Love, Danny Glover, and those kids. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself as I haven't even gotten to the Riggs and Murtaugh's casting yet. The casting is really good, as you say. And like you, I love Murtaugh's family. You get, you really get to feel like you can get to know each of them in these films, especially Trish and Rianne. Um, I feel like in many ways, the family saves Riggs by adopting him as one of their own. Uh, they challenge Murtaugh to get out of his very strict conservative worldview while also giving Riggs people to care about aside from himself. So these are people that uh, seem small, but they add, add a great deal to the series beyond being targets for the villains. And because we care about these people, we care when the bad guys try to use them to get at Riggs and Murtaugh. But uh, speaking of our heroes, why don't we talk about the casting? Sure, Steve. Let's talk about the casting of the character Martin Riggs. According to Vanity Fair magazine, Bruce Willis was considered for the role of Riggs. Hmm. Uh, I think Willis might have done a decent job, uh, but I don't think the character would have fit so naturally as it did on Gibson. And, and really, the whole spirit of the character would have been very different. Uh, Shane Black stated that he wanted William Hurt to play the role of Martin Riggs, but studio executives informed him that Hurt was just too obscure for the part. Uh, Christopher Lambert, Steve, Stephen Lang, and Christopher Reeves were also considered for the role. <laughs> I like Lambert as Connor McLeod, uh, but I just don't see him working as Riggs as well as Gibson either. Uh, the worst consideration of, by, of all of those has got to be Reeves, though. I mean, can you imagine Christopher Reeves as Martin Riggs? I, I honestly can't even believe that was a consideration. Uh, luckily, Richard Donner had been interested in working with Mel Gibson after he auditioned for the role of Navari in Donner's Lady Hawk from 1985. 
Uh, Gibson said that this particular story was a cut above the others I had passed on because the action is really a sideline, which heightens the story to these two great characters. I picture Riggs as an almost Chaplin-esque figure, a guy who doesn't expect anything from life and even toys with the idea of taking his own. He's not like these stalwarts who come down from Mount Olympus and wreak havoc and go away. He's somebody who doesn't look like he's about to go off until he actually does. I thought this little bit was cool. Uh, Martin Riggs is actually a a big Three Stooges fan, as we all know, uh, in in the films. Uh, And as it turns out, that is actually something Mel Gibson shares with the character. I I think that actually shows, too. Riggs comes across as a genuine fan and not just somebody mimicking tropes. I mean, his impressions are spot on. For sure. And that's why Gibson was the right decision. I mean, as much as I love Christopher Reeve and I can't blame Donna for wanting to work with him again, it was the right decision to pass on him. I mean, right or wrong, everyone sees Christopher Reeve as Superman, and everyone would have seen him as Superman coming in. Uh, Reeve is a great actor, and he probably wanted a role that would challenge him and get him out of the Superman box, but Riggs was just not the right role for Reeve to do that. You need act- an actor with a real edge, somebody who's unpredictable and who's believable as a Maverick Cowboy kind of cop. Um, Christopher Lambert would have been an interesting choice, uh, he does have something of an edge as Connor McCloud, and he might have been okay in the role of Riggs, but I don't think he would have gotten the humanity of Riggs down nearly as well, nor do I think he could take the role to the edge like we saw in the film. As for Willis, he's great, but he's better at playing the regular guy. He's just not capable of the level of edginess that Riggs often goes to. So I think Donner was right to go with Mel Gibson. I can't imagine anybody else's Riggs after Gibson got him down so perfectly. Um, And a lot of what Gibson gives to Riggs is the eyes. He has these wild eyes, and that adds an edge of unpredictability to the character. In the first movie, you really wonder if he's so far off the rails that he might actually kill himself. But Gibson also gets the softer elements down, too. I mean, the love he has for his dead wife and his dog, Sam. I mean, his acting like the cool uncle to Murtaugh's kids, and is he even being a fan of the Three Stooges? Gibson definitely was the way to go out of those options. He really did get all the little nuances right, like you said. But once they had their Riggs character, they had the field fill the role of Riggs' partner, Roger. It was casting director Marion Dougherty who first suggested the teaming Gibson with Danny Glover, given that Murtaugh had no set ethnicity in the script. Danny Glover liked the idea of playing Roger Murtaugh. Having just played Mr. in 1985's The Color Purple, he felt like the Murtaugh character would offer him a chance to show a whole new range of character expression and experience. Glover had this to say specifically in retrospect. Aside from the chance to work with Mel, which turned out to be pure pleasure, one of the reasons I jumped at this project was the family aspect. The chance to play intricate relationships and subtle humor that exists in every close family group was an intriguing challenge, as was playing a guy turning 50. Murtaugh's a little cranky about his age until everything he loves is threatened. His reawakening parallels Riggs. Danny Glover was actually only 40 in 1985, despite Murtaugh himself being 50 in the first film, but I don't think that was an issue at all. No, I don't think it was either. Um, but I'll be honest, on uh, watching the, the movie again, I had a feeling that they hadn't fully decided who Murtaugh was until later in the process. Um, I have no proof of it or anything, but there are little things that make me wonder. Um, the name Roger Murtaugh could have worked for just about anybody, for instance. I mean, on the face of it, it's just not a name I would associate with someone like Danny Glover if he hadn't spent years real playing the role. I mean, I got the distinct sense that it was the casting of Glover that made Murtaugh what he ultimately became, and that was the right decision. But there's more to the story, isn't there? 
There is a bit more, actually. But as a comment on what you said, I feel like the issues you're, you're seeing with Marta come from having to alter the characters from Black's original vision. Mm -hmm. uh, but but back to the casting. Uh, casting director Marion Dougherty had Gibson flown in from Sydney, Australia, and Danny Glover was flown in from Chicago, Illinois, Illinois, where he was in a play. According to Richard Donner, it took about two hours, and by the time we were done, I was in seventh heaven. They found innuendos. They found laughter where I never saw it. They found tears where they didn't exist before. And most importantly, they found a relationship all in just one reading. So if you ask about casting, it was magical, just total dynamite. It went so well, in fact, that both Gibson and Glover were signed on by early spring in 1986. After flying home to pack, the two of them would spend the next two months in L.A. doing intensive physical training under the supervision of Bobby Bass, the stunt coordinator. We're talking about physical conditioning, weightlifting, and weapons handling and safety. Bass was able to use his own military experience to help bring a greater depth of understanding for Gibson in playing the rig's character. To familiarize Gibson and Glover with being police officers and being undercover, they actually made arrangements for Glover and Gibson to go around with LAPD officers while they were on duty. In addition to this, the LAPD sent technical advisors and the LA County Sheriff's Department worked closely with Donner and the actors to ensure authenticity. Now, I'm no expert, but I will say that the film's portrayal of the actual police work felt very authentic. Uh, I, you can tell, I think, that there was attention to detail given there. Well, I'm not an expert in California law or the LAPD either, so I can't say anything definitive. There are points in some of these movies that get glossed over, and I'll talk about one of those when we get to Lethal Weapon 2. But for the first movie, I didn't notice any real inaccuracies, at least to the best of my knowledge. I, I didn't either. At, at the very least, it felt more authentic than some other cop movies I have seen. Uh, but there are just a couple other casting choices I want to talk about. Uh, you can't have an actor like Mad Max's Mel Gibson going up against just any old bad guy in a big final fight of Lethal Weapon. So finding the perfect person to play Mr. Joshua was going to be key. But the search was over as soon as Academy Award-nominated Gary Busey asked to read for the part. Basically, Busey, Busey had not auditioned for a film since the Buddy Holly story in 1978 that got him the nomination. In Busey's comment, I had butterflies. I'd never played a bad guy, and no one had seen me since I lost 60 pounds and got back into shape. But I decided to make the initiative in order to have the opportunity to work with Dick, Joel, Mel, and Danny. I'm constantly looking for someone to pull the best performance out of me, and any of those guys could. They even talked me into dyeing my hair. <laughs> Busey also credits the film for reviving his failing film career. Oh, man, I really love Mr. Joshua because he came across as a darker version of Riggs. I mean, Riggs could have been Joshua if he truly embraced being a killer instead of a cop. And Joshua really does tempt him to take the lethal option. Uh, Gary Busey plays that up, role up really well. And the scene where he takes the lighter to his arm coldly without flinching just sells how far gone Joshua is. Actually, and uh, this might give you an idea of just how dumb I was as a teenager. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I totally let someone burn my arm with a lighter like that just to prove that that scene could be done. And I totally summoned my inner Joshua to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but that random story aside, I, I, have, I, I just have to comment about one last actress who actually had a very small role in the film, and that is Jackie Swanson, who played Amanda Hunsaker. Uh, she's the girl who jumped to her death at the beginning of the film 
Anyway, she performed that high fall off the balcony on her own with training by the legendary and late stuntman Dar Robinson. As a quick side note, Dar Robinson died shortly after production and director Richard Donner dedicated the film to him. But back to the jump scene. The stunt was done with a with an airbag covered with a life-size painting of the driveway and cars below like a foreground miniature. It visually blends into the real scene. Uh, for this reason, the editor was able to hold her fall until the very last second before the impact, and this created a greater realism for the fall. Oh, man, I remember seeing the, that opening scene and being absolutely shocked by that moment. I didn't understand it at all the first time that I saw it. I was still fairly young at the time, but it was a really well-executed scene, and it just does, still does to leave an impact. But I think you had something else to say about Amanda's death as well, Mike. <laughs> I, I, I do, Steve. Uh, I have a little bit of a rant, actually. Um, I really hate the propagation in the 70s and 80s of the idea that people who drug, do drugs think that they can fly, so they jump off of roofs. I can assure you that no one I have ever known or heard of, no matter what they were on, ever thought they could fly, and I have been around. I imagine it would be a really hard to find a drug that would make the mind forget about gravity or our basic instinct to avoid falling that we've had since we were infants. It's ridiculous on a level only previously attained by paranoid pseudo science of reefer madness but honestly the 80s were full of adults who were concerned about their children not being able to distinguish fantasy and reality on a seriously paranoid level they believed that music movies and even playing dungeons and dragons could cause children to lose the ability to know what is real and even sell their souls to the devil <laughs> it sounds ridiculous now but this crazy concept was propagated by films like lethal weapon and its opening scene with amanda hudsucker yeah, I have to admit I was skeptical about that as well, but I don't have any real experience with drugs, so I don't feel I'm the right com person to comment on that part. What bothered me, though, is that the whole scenario doesn't age well at all. I mean, today, if a girl wanted to make risque videos like that for the money, she'd just make an OnlyFans account. She wouldn't be going through her dad's creepy business partners. But as you say, this was a time when those kinds of issues weren't really well understood, especially by Hollywood. I mean, we were still in the time of the satanic panic, and it wouldn't be debunked officially until much later. Actually, as a quick side note, and, and, and this one I think you might re recognize, actually. Uh, yeah. I'm reminded of Stan Lee's anti-drug comic, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man number 96 from 1971. In that comic, too, someone got high, thought they could fly, and was about to jump off a building until Spider-Man mm -hmm. saved them. <laughs> but I, I, I'm done ranting now. I apologize. <laughs> but to, back to Lethal Weapon. Um, as per usual, though, I, I should advise that uh, we're watching the director's cuts of these films, with the exception of Lethal Weapon 4, which does not have a director's cut. Um, and that that's actually because the director's cut of, Le the, of Lethal Weapon 4 is the version we got. Um, the director's cut of the 1987 film features seven minutes of additional footage. And in, in a new trailer scene, Riggs smashes his TV with a beer bottle and knocks over a pick with Victoria and him that was sitting on top of it. Riggs apologizes to Victoria for the TV and says that he'll get her a new one. Later on, we see him coming back from work with a TV. Uh, Murtaugh, before partnering with Riggs, goes to practice at the firing range. We see him hold out his hand and it's shaking a little. And then he makes he makes a fist and concentrates for a second and spits his hand, fingers out for real quick and then just 
I mean, just steady, steady like a rock. He makes his shot and hits the target. Roger wishes himself a happy birthday and heads into the office. Riggs, before the shootout with the drug dealers at the Christmas tree lot, answers a call with, in the schoolyard with the sniper. Riggs walks out into the line of fire and kills the sniper, emptying his clip into him. But I will elaborate on that scene in just a minute. Uh, Riggs, after leaving Murtaugh's house, goes out to solicit a prostitute. The aftermath is not shown but Rig says he wants to take her home to watch the Stooges with him, and for this he pays her a hundred dollars. You know, um, the first time I watched this, I assumed that Riggs took the girl home because he thought he could get information out of her about Amanda. So I thought he was paying her for the information and just giving her somewhere stuff to say while they talked. It wasn't made clear though. Um, agreed on the firing rage scene. That that was awesome, and the movie's better for that being in the cut. Uh, Donner, I, I noticed, uh, really knows the right way to edit his movies, and his director's cuts are always really good. I mean, his cut of Superman 2 is, in most respects, far better than the Lester cut. And his cut of Lethal Weapon seems like it was stronger than the theatrical as well. Oh, uh, we are 100% agreed on Super, Superman 2, and, and, and definitely as, as far as the cut on Lethal Weapon. Um, I actually had a different take on that scene, though. Uh, considering Riggs was questioning a prostitute when he was shot and this scene, I get the impression that he's familiar with them. Um, he might even use their services, but that's not what I'm saying. I mean, familiar with their plight. He asked the girl how old she was and she asked him if they liked him young. He said, yeah, the younger, the better. My take was that he was aware of the amount of runaway girls who end up as prostitutes because they don't feel like there's another way out and wanted to get one of them off the streets for the nights and out of the rain. The younger she was, the better as children are often in greater danger than adults. He doesn't want sex. He wants to watch TV and he clearly overpays her as she is surprised at how much money he gives her. I think he knew she was in dire straits and needed money and was simply trying to help her out. But he did it in such a way that was not a charity case in her eyes, You might, which might have come across as offensive. But ultimately, he was just he just wanted to provide a respite uh, from the streets, the weather and her job and help her out with some cash. I think helping her and a little company was what he got out of that. It actually didn't occur to me until uh, until you said that, that it, it might have been an attempt to get information. Yeah, that's understandable. I, I just had a hard time understanding at first why Riggs would bring the girl home. It seemed, just seemed a bit odd even for him. Um, you're right on the company, though. I, I get the feeling in retrospect that Riggs just wanted not to be alone with his dog and the barrel of his gun tempting him to use it. And Riggs admits he doesn't think about it when he's on the job. So he could be that for Riggs it was a way of pushing away the temptation to look into the abyss. But speaking of the abyss, I think there was a Riggs scene you wanted to comment on, Mike? Actually, you add a nice bit of flavoring to the thing about the company for Riggs. I, I'm going to go ahead and add that to my head cannon. Um, <laughs> but but you're right. There is a scene I want to elaborate on a little bit. You know the scene where Riggs takes out the sniper? That guy calls him one psycho son of a bitch for what he does. But you'll notice that he got what they would knew about the sniper's position and behavior before he went in. And let's not forget his training. He went in there with a plan, not wanting to die, but also not being afraid of it. You'll note that when Roger tells him later that he wants to die, Rick says, I don't, but I'm not afraid of it. He lives for the job, and this is one thing that he has left in the world besides Sam, his dog. 
Sure, sometimes he thinks about killing himself, but the job, doing the job, stops him from pulling the trigger. The point is that Riggs may be out on the fringes and may not be afraid of death, but let's not confuse that with looking to die. Those are two different things. When Riggs gets the jumper off the roof, he says the guy that is he says to the guy that it's not like he's trying to murder anyone. And the guy agrees and that that it's just himself he wants to kill and that isn't a crime. And Riggs says that's how he sees it too. And I I think that's really important to note there. Then you'll note that it was only Roger's thumb getting in the way of the hammer that stopped Riggs from completing Roger's dare to kill himself. I think that was about Riggs being dared and called a liar about his suffering. Riggs was alone after he lost Victoria, and he felt particularly alone during the holidays because of her absence. Riggs talked about how people think he's a psycho, so they don't want to work with him, or they think he's faking it to draw a psycho pension, so they don't want to work with him, and so basically he's fucked. Riggs said that the one thing that kept him from killing himself was the job. But I think he believed he was making a difference, and that gave him some kind of purpose. Yeah, that's fair. I, I don't think Riggs was necessarily looking to die, but I don't think he would have minded death if it meant seeing his wife again. Uh, he's willing to push himself to the edge, but he'll never cross it. So I don't think he fears death because he doesn't feel at this point like he has anything to lose if he dies. Uh, Riggs just feels like he's lost about everything that matters to him. Um, what changes that viewpoint is Murtaugh and his family. I mean, Murtaugh has everything to lose, which is why he doesn't take risks. And then when Murtaugh and his family start to become family to Riggs as well, uh, Riggs starts pulling himself back from the edge a bit. Because now he knows that there are people who matter to him and that care about him. So by the end of the film, uh, Riggs is less of a maverick and Murtaugh learns that he can't always play by the rules. And so their friendship changes them both for the better. I have to agree, and I think that really a great partnership is not formed by two that are, are identical, but rather opposites that complement each other, like Riggs and Murtaugh. Uh, but let me elaborate on that with the scene. So you know the scene where they're on the boat outside Murtaugh's house, and Riggs asks Roger if he knows anything about boats. Roger basically says, there's not much to it, and asks why Riggs, you know, there's water all around it. It's just really kind of simple. And asks why Riggs has to make things complicated. And he asks as if he is frustrated by Riggs doing that. I get the impression that as Roger has gotten older that perhaps he has gotten a bit more and more willing to accept the easiest answer and the simplest solution even in his police work. Uh, but that is speculation. Either way though, Riggs says that he doesn't make things complicated. They just get that way all by themselves. And of course, Roger knows that he means Amanda Hunsacker's murder even if Riggs didn't come right out and say it. Rig says that Hunsacker's murder is just too neat, and this is where I get my impression from. Roger says that he likes things neat, but Riggs responded that by neat, you, you meant simple. All of that to say that I think Riggs makes Roger a better police officer, and as evidence, I point to Roger being willing to try stuff even if it is a little thin after that. That's definitely true, and sometimes the simplest solution can be the correct one. I mean, Ockham's razor has its appeal at times. The problem is when the simple solution blinds you to other possibilities that make more sense. And this is what happens to Roger. Um, Riggs lives in a world where he can't trust the simple solution because he's been involved in a lot of really insane things during the war. So he carries that to his police work and he's able to challenge Murtaugh to be a better cop because of it. They definitely complement each other in that fashion, I think. 
But if if I could switch topics for a minute, I have to talk about the amazingly choreographed fight between Riggs and Joshua at the end. This is one of the all-time great movie fights, in my opinion. Uh, but there was a reason that fight kicked so much ass. From the early production stages, Richard Donner wanted Mel Gibson's final fight sequence with Joshua to be unique. Coincidentally, assistant director Willie Simons had an avid interest in unusual forms of martial arts, and he invited several practitioners to set to the set to demonstrate for for Donner. Three technical advisors were then hired, each a practitioner of a particular martial arts style. Cedric Adams taught the actors the movements of Caparera, a fighting uh, art originally uh, created by the Angolans from West Africa to protect themselves against slave traders. Uh, a second technical advisor, advisor, Dennis Newsom, brought Jailhouse Rock to the fight sequence. Jailhouse Rock is an indigenous African-American fighting style originating in the 19th century when slave were first institutionalized and needed to defend themselves. It has evolved secretly within the U.S. penal system. Regional styles reflect physical realities of the specific institutions like Comstock style or San Quentin style and so forth. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, as developed by the Gracie family, was the third form of martial arts used. The three advisors worked with stunt coordinator Bobby Bass, who has a third-degree black belt in judo. They wove the distinct martial arts disciplines together into an intricate piece of choreography that was first worked out on stunt doubles. Uh, filming was spread out over four, four nights, shooting from dusk till dawn, resulting in an edited sequence that would last minutes on screen. And speaking of which, the fight scene between Riggs and Joshua was originally actually four minutes longer, but it was cut down for pacing. Huh. Uh, the last fight between Joshua and Riggs in the rain is epic, I agree. Uh, Busey really pulls off the role of the heavy in that last fight. There's a confusing and chaotic look to the fight that feels real. Um, I also like that Riggs looks like he takes some really nasty hits from Joshua before giving his own back. So when Riggs finally takes him down, it's just so satisfying to watch. I'll also add that I respect that Murtaugh tells the cops around them to stand down so that Riggs can take Joshua down himself. Now, now some of it probably is that Joshua is that dangerous, and Riggs is better equipped to fight him, but I like to think that it's also because Roger felt that Riggs needed that fight and that victory so he could move on. There's a real catharsis for Riggs that he really lets loose here, facing someone that represents the absolute worst in himself. So the Joshua fight is not just one of those conveniently staged fight scenes. It's a fight that is an important part of Riggs and his character journey. I had not considered it that way before, but you're absolutely right about the fight needing to happen. In a way, that fight represented his emotional struggle and grief with PTSD, and it being difficult was part of the satisfaction in it. Fighting his way through that was like finally breaking through the chains. Uh, a running gag in, Le in the Lethal Weapon series is Murtaugh and Riggs not knowing whether to go on three or to count to three and then go uh, when they are in, when they are about to do something. Uh, while the two of them don't do that in the first film, the gag is still in the movie when the cops are trying to sing silent night and that guy messes up the cue to come in because of that same confusion another running gag in the, in the franchise is murtaugh saying that he's getting too old for this shit but it started with a more definitive declaration in the first film when murtaugh simply says i am too old for this shit twice you would eventually get the modified lethal weapon 4 version and it says we're not too old for this shit <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm too old for this. There's a line uh, that I would honestly use from time to time back in the day. They're not in a while. It's one of the great running lines through the series. There are even YouTube compilations of all the times the series uses that line and they're worth watching. Oh, as and as a side note, Die Hard is an action movie that gets classified as a Christmas movie. And we will talk about that in depth when we get to that series, I'm sure. But here's my question, Mike. Would you consider Lethal Weapon to be a Christmas movie? Um, I, I honestly never thought about it before, but after rewatching it, I realized you could make a good case for it. It does take place during Christmas, and the film is about found family and the idea that everyone can find a place to belong at Christmas, no matter how lost they might be. I absolutely consider it a Christmas movie. In my book, if it takes place during Christmas, it's fair game. <laughs> Plus, the family aspect you mentioned certainly does add to that. Uh, so just a little bit of random trivia before we do our final thoughts on Lethal Weapon from 1987 and move on to the next film. Uh, Murtaugh tells Riggs that Michael Hunsactor saves his life in the Aladrang Valley in 1965. Fifteen years later, uh, after Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson would play Colonel Hall Moore in We Are Soldiers from 2002. And that film is actually an adaptation of that very battle Mur Murtaugh was referencing. Uh, but there's more. Michael Hunsaker reveals that he worked for Air America during the Vietnam War, and Mel Gibson started a movie called Air America in 1990 that may have been based on that conversation. Hunsaker was referencing was refer referring to an airline that carried both passengers and cargo and was covertly owned and operated by the CIA from 1950 to 1976. It supplied and supported operations in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War and has at times been unfairly accused of shipping heroin out of Laos. Unlike in both Lethal Weapon and in Gibson's Air America movie, there has never been any substantial proof that Air America ever did knowingly do that. But, I mean, we are talking about the CIA, so maybe that says something in and of itself. <laughs> Is that a newsy? Um, yeah, that line every time I see a hear uh, Air America. Anyway, um, I'm guessing that Mel Gibson must be really fascinated with the Vietnam War if he keeps coming back to these kinds of roles. I mean, that's just a guess, though. I, I would like to talk about something for a moment as it pertains to the Vietnam War and Lethal Weapon. Uh, actually, uh, many of the characters in Lethal Weapon all served in the in the war during the 60s and the 70s, and that experience factors into the into into all of their lives and has a great impact on the plot itself. Both Riggs and Murtaugh were in that war. Riggs actually ran into the Shadow Company during the war, and Michael uh, and Michael Hunsaker, who is connected to them, saving Roger's life connects him personally to the the Amanda Hunsaker murder. Riggs clearly suffers from PTSD as he reacts to people touching him as if he's holding back from hurting them. General Peter McAllister runs drug shipments to the U.S. via old Vietnam smuggling routes and connections established during the war. You'll note that McAllister uses mercenaries who have connections to the U.S. Special Forces. In fact, the bomb used to blow up Dixie's house had a mercury switch that Riggs had not seen since the war. Later in the desert, Riggs uses his experience as a sniper from the, for the Phoenix Project during the war. In fact, it is likely that it was Riggs' time in the military that led him to become a police officer. All of that to say that the Vietnam War was central to the first film, and I think straying away from that soldier background and the story development for the sequels is unfortunate. Yeah, the war absolutely is an essential piece of the puzzle. Uh, during our episode on The Punisher, we talked about how Vietnam is such an important part of who Frank Castle is, but I'd argue it's similar for Riggs and Murtaugh. 
Uh, Riggs was special forces and he was probably involved in quite a lot of black ops and that shapes who he becomes as a cop. Uh, Murtaugh wasn't involved in the darkest part of the war like Riggs was, but he probably learned to respect discipline in the chain of command from his time in the military. And there's one other crucial thing that the war gives them. They both understand each other because they were both there. Um, even Murtaugh can't talk to his own family about his time in the war. That's something he can only really talk about with Riggs. The, the reason that they bond despite their differences is because they both have a similar background and they understand how the war affected each other. Oh, wow. Well said. I, I absolutely agree with that. That is surely one of the reasons they have such a strong bond. Uh, but I believe you had some you had something you discovered in watching Lethal Weapon again, didn't you, Steve? I do indeed. Um, on watching that film again, I found an Easter egg that connects to the story of Lethal Weapon 2. So in Murtaugh's house, there's a sign on his refrigerator that says, End Apartheid Now. Now, it totally makes sense for Murtaugh's family to be against apartheid in South Africa. But it also foreshadows the plot of Lethal Weapon 2, which deals directly with South Africa racism and apartheid. There's even a scene where Mel Gibson holds up a sign with End Apartheid Now. I have no idea if they knew that there would be a sequel uh, when they filmed that, much less what the plot of the sequel would be. But either way, it's such a cool nod to the second film that I couldn't help but mention it here. Ah, nah, that's a good catch there, and, and it totally fits. Um, according to Donner, he actually puts signs and ads in his movies all the time to reflect certain political and social views of his. It's not something I knew before that now that I do know, I, I, I see it all over the place in the Lethal Weapon films. Um, in my mind, there is no doubt that 1987's Lethal Weapon is the crown jewel of the Lethal Weapon franchise. It is certainly my favorite of the four films. Riggs character arc in the first film is my favorite of, of his of all the films i really like his climb out of absolute despair into the light because of the influences of roger and his family that that is just beautiful to me absolutely i had originally forgotten so much of this movie but i gained a new appreciation for it on coming back to it again if i had remembered how good this film was i might even have considered it for our perfect 10 episode it really is that good and I'm with you on Riggs and his character arc and how he finds himself because of Murtaugh and his family. This was the darkest of the four films, but you see the dawn at the end of this film. That sells the tonal change and where the movie tends to move from its very serious roots into more fun buddy cop shenanigans. But why don't we get into that and talk about our next film? That sounds like a great idea, Steve. Uh, Lethal Weapon 2 came out two years after the first film in 1989. What's cool about that is in the story, it's actually two years after the first film. I love it when movies do real-time stuff like that. Um, all of the regular cast returns for this film, including Stephen Kahan as Captain Ed Murphy, so I don't need to list them all again here. Uh, but there were some new faces and at least one on new ongoing character in Leo Getz, who was played by Joe Pesci. Uh, but others were considered for the role. Uh, Joe Pantoliano uh, was the first choice to play Leo, uh, but he turned it down due to a schedule conflict with The Last of the Finest from 1990. Danny DeVito was considered for the role of Leo, uh, but it doesn't seem like they approached him about it. Uh, last but not least, uh, Gary Berghoff uh, from 1972's MASH was asked to play Leo, but turned it down. 
I can't find anything on how Pesci acquired the role, uh, but I do know that he added a lot to the character uh, that was not originally there. And I honestly can't imagine Leo gets any differently. Leo gets, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Stick was based on Disneyland employees giving directions uh, to guests in uh, Fantasyland. Originally, Leo was going to be an oily, effeminate character, but Joe Pesci didn't want to play him that way. Uh, basically, Pesci wanted to take the oily part and make it real as opposed to insincere and pitched Leo Getz as an adamant, too eager people pleaser. And Richard Donner loved that and laughed when Pesci pitched it to him. The stick was referenced actually in Home Alone from 1990 in the OK Plumbing logo painted on the side of the band that Pesci drove. Oh, man, Leo Getz is such a fun character. And Joe Pesci makes him so weaselly entertaining in all of these films. You'd think the okay, okay, okay thing would get old or tiring after a while, but it really doesn't even after all these years. A lot of it is uh, Pesci's delivery of the line more than likely. I mean, the way he says it adds to the comedy value. Leo also is a good contrast to the cops who don't have any tolerance for Leo's BS <laughs> at all. He's a funny character and his exchange with Riggs and Burkhaw are often comedy gold. Uh, the three of them really do work well off each other. And, and I had not actually considered Leo's character as a contrast before, uh, like, like a bouncing board for Riggs and Murtaugh, essentially, at least from a writing perspective. Uh, but that actually totally works well. I love that. Uh, another new face that would be a recurring character was the carpenter in the film named McGee. And they did not dig too deep for that name. The actor's <laughs> name is literally Jack McGee. Um, also, a quick bit of trivia, McGee, uh, McGee ad-libbed his line about Rianne Murtaugh's uh, rubber commercial, making him want to go out and buy some rubbers right now. <laughs> I just can't even imagine saying that to somebody's father. I mean, holy shit. Um, apparently, the crew liked it so much that they kept it in. Uh, I thought it was hilarious that Leo later said that he was likewise inspired by Rianne's commercial. <laughs> and, and while we are on the subject of that commercial, I have a little tidbit that might interest some of you. While the Murtaugh family waits for the commercial, they watch Tales from the Crypt from 1989, Season 1, Episode 2, and the All Through the House episode, uh, the Psycho Santa episode, which aired on June 10th, 1989, starring Mary Ellen Trainer. You might recognize her as the police psychiatrist, Dr. Stephanie Woods, who appears in all four Lethal Weapon movies. Also, as another Six Degrees kind of connection, some of the episodes of Tales from the Crypt series on HBO were actually produced by Richard Donner. Yeah, very true. Um, I've actually seen the episode you're talking about, and it is really good. Definitely check out Tales of the Crypt if you haven't seen it, but let's move on. Anyway, the rubber commercial is one of the running jokes in this movie, and when you've nearly forgotten about it, that's when they drop the joke in your face again. Um, there's some good comic timing in the film, and they play it well against the action set pieces. What really gets me with the commercial, though, is how it hits Murtaugh, who is such an old-school dad and is shocked rigid by what his daughter's doing. Meanwhile, it's Riggs who's supportive of Rianne, though some of it probably is to troll Roger a bit. I wouldn't even be surprised if Riggs was in on the joke with the rubbers on Murtaugh's desk. <laughs> I would not be surprised at all either. In fact, we flat out see Riggs taking part in tormenting and teaser, teasing Roger in the later films, particularly in four. Um, but back to the casting. Uh, Bridget Nielsen was considered to play Rika Vandenhaas, uh, the secretary for the South African consonant and Riggs' love interest in the film. 
I don't know for sure if this has anything to do with it, but I'm imagining the scene uh, where Riggs is carrying Rika's body and walking back and forth on the beach. And I'm picturing the six foot one Bridget Nilsson <laughs> in, in Riggs's arms. Uh, you know, you compare her to the five foot four Patsy Kinsett who got the role. I mean, if that isn't a clear enough picture for you, it, consider that Gibson himself is only 5'10". So carrying a six foot one woman in his arms probably would have been a little difficult, especially on the beach. Uh, but that's pure speculation. Uh, but here's something about Patsy Kensett that made it into this film. She's actually the lead singer of a short lived British pop group, uh, Eighth Wonder. And you can actually hear one of their songs in the movie. In the scene where Leo is cleaning Martin Riggs's house, uh, their song, I'm Not Scared, can be heard playing in the background. One last thing about Kenzit is that she doesn't seem to know how she feels about the sex scene with Gibson in that movie. <laughs> On the one hand, she says that it was really uncomfortable for both her and Gibson because they're both married and Catholic. <laughs> well, that's the good girl answer. On the flip side of that coin, she also says that the sex scene was great, but also kind of disappointing. While she had to strip for the scene, Mel Gibson was allowed to keep some things to himself. She confessed, when we did a love scene, I was buck naked behind but he had this modesty pouch thing so i didn't see it and i didn't look but he was a great kisser <laughs> i'll take her work for it <laughs> well there's something cool about the idea of riggs getting it on with right so this probably wasn't the right film for it i, I don't think the character needed to, that kind of physical presence anyway uh patsy kensett with her smaller stature comes across as more vulnerable and when the death hits it hits a bit harder I did like the romance with Riggs and Rika, and even though it was pretty clear things were going to go wrong in this situation, I mean, Riggs is up against a really powerful enemy on this one, and he managed to troll the bad guy something fierce. So when it backfires on Riggs, it does so tragically, and I think Kenzen embodies that sense of tragedy really well by showing what was lost. Yeah, you make a point with the vulnerability thing. Uh, vulnerable is not how I would describe Bridget Nielsen. I mean, not even a little. <laughs> she doesn't come across that way. I mean... You just don't get that vibe from her. Even she, she has this just mm. strong woman vibe to her, just standing there. Um, you know what I mean? So, Kenzit, I think, was really a better fit. And, and to wrap up this segment of the episode, we should mention the others in the film. Joss Ackland played South African Consul General Arjun Rudd. Uh, Derek O'Connor played Arjun's secretary uh, agent Peter Vorstedt. And Mark Rolston uh, played the short-lived Hans. Uh, lots of lots of cops appeared in the movie, but only only the only real one of note is Grandel Bush, and he's only relevant because he was in part one and part two. Um, although he appeared as a cop in both films, Grandel Bush uh, character in Lethal Weapon Two, Detective Jerry Collins, is different from his character in the first in the first film, which was Boyette. Uh, but we've talked about the cast a lot here and haven't even gotten to the script yet. Uh, so why don't you take it from here, Steve? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, the original script for Lethal Weapon 2 was co-written by Shane Black and Warren Murphy. And if you don't know who Warren Murphy is, I suggest you look up a series of men's adventure novels called The Destroyer. Maybe you've heard of a film called Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Um, I covered that for an episode of Comic Crusaders a while back, or Cinema Crusaders a while back. Uh, Warren Murphy is the co-creator of Remo Williams, the main character of that film. And the Remo movie is loosely based on the Destroyer novels featuring Remo that he wrote. At first, I was surprised to find out that Warren Murphy was involved with Lethal Weapon, but then on reflection, the pieces fell into place. It makes perfect sense that a writer like Warren Murphy would be brought in to do a Lethal Weapon sequel. 
Riggs is the kind of character who fits the Remo mold in a lot of ways. He's a tough guy with a smart mouth. He's a He has a Vietnam War background like Remo. And Riggs has that odd couple dynamic with Murtaugh, much like Remo has with his master Chun. Also, like Remo, Riggs in this movie has to deal with a villain who is beyond the reach of the law. Uh, Remo, at least in the film, has his 11th commandment, thou shalt not get away with it. His organization, Cure, is tasked with the job of killing people who are above the law and can't be touched. So in many ways, Lethal Weapon 2 is very much a Warren Murphy kind of story, and we'll get into the details about that soon. But Warren Murphy and Shane Black weren't the only people who were involved in the script. Um, Jeffrey Bohm was brought in again for Lethal Weapon 2, and he ended up writing two drafts, one that was more hard-boiled action and another one that was more comedic. So at Donner's suggestion, Bohm found a middle ground between the two drafts. And then Donner would change things, and Bohm would have to do more rewrites to account for ideas that Donner would come up with as he was working. But Robert Mark Heyman also claimed to do some uncredited work for the film, mainly in adding in details with the South African villains. If I could take a moment to talk about some of the stuff that was changed from Black's original script. Um, there was considerably more violence and extreme violence throughout the film. You mentioned the South African villains. Um, well, believe it or not, they were even more vicious in the original script. You know, uh, Shapiro, the, the officer that gets blown up jumping off her uh, diving board? Well, in black script, the South Africans torture Shapiro to death in a very nasty scene. There was also a scene where Riggs is tortured by South Africans in a very similar way he was in the first film, but much worse. Uh, the script also included an action sequence in which a plane full of cocaine gets destroyed, causing cocaine to fall over all over Los Angeles like snow. <laughs> I guess Black was just mad that that scene didn't make it into the first movie. <laughs> the ending of the film was a bit different, too. Uh, the destruction of the stilt house leads to an enormous brush fire, and Riggs chases Benedict, uh, the original name for the villain Pieter uh, Borstedt, into the fire. Uh, but it was more intense than it sounds. Shane Black described Borstedt, who was a lot more dangerous in the original script, as Riggs' arch nemesis, his worst nightmare. After the final battle with Benedict, Riggs dies very slowly after he gets stabbed by him. The last scene in Black's script was Murtaugh watching the videotape that Riggs made earlier since he had a premonition that he was going to die, and in which he says goodbye to Murtaugh. Black says in interviews in the years that followed that he considers his original script for Lethal Weapon, which was also called Play Dirty, to be his best work and the most intense script he has ever written. He also said how the problem with the final version of the second movie was that they did too much comedy and that he dislikes the other two sequels of the film because they, of the way they ruined Riggs's character. Yeah, as a side note, uh, the actress who played Shapiro was the same person who played uh, Vasquez in Aliens and who was uh, John Connor's adopted mother in Terminator 2. So that was an oh, interesting nice. note. Yeah. <laughs> but it's clear that there were some uh, definite creative differences between Shane Black and Richard Donner on this one. Uh, while I like what this movie became, I don't blame Black for feeling the way he does as a creator. He clearly had a vision in mind for the series, and it was much darker than the films Donner wanted to make. It probably sucks seeing something you created turn into something you find unrecognizable by other people. So while I think the film turned the films turned out fine in the end, I can understand Black's position and where he's coming from, too. But from here, I'll talk about what happens in the film. Uh, so the movie opens with Riggs and Murtaugh on a high-speed chase against some drug runners in L.A. This is not made easier by the fact that Murtaugh is chasing the bad guys in his wife's brand-new station wagon. <laughs> so after damaging the car in the chase, thanks to Riggs, they fail to capture the criminals. But they do find something unusual. 
uh, the trunk of the car is full of solid gold Kruger Rands, um, South African currency. Um, at the at home, it turns out that Rianne is starting in a commercial, which Riggs loudly announces to everybody in the station. <laughs> Hilarity ensues when it turns out Rianne is starting in a condom commercial, embarrassing Roger and leading to the movies of running gag. Um, because of all the publicity and the heat coming from it, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh are reassigned to another case. Uh, their next job is to find and protect a witness that's under federal custody. This turns out to be Leo Getz, who's a sleazy accountant and a money launderer who turns state's witness against his former bosses. Um, room service comes up to Leo's hotel room, and it turns out that the delivery guy is an assassin hired to kill Leo. Um, after Riggs, Leo, and the assassin do a swan dive into the hotel pool, um, the assassin gets away. Uh, Riggs and Murtaugh manage to chase the assassin down to a stilt house, which turns out to be the home of a South African diplomat named Argent Rudd. And there, uh, Rudd invokes diplomatic immunity, and the police are forced to back off. That's not enough for Rudd, though, who roughs up Murtaugh and his wife, and then later plants a bomb on Murtaugh's toilet. <laughs> After barely evading the blast, Riggs, Riggs and Murtaugh decide to try other things and find out what's really going on. So Riggs goes around stalking Rudd and basically trolling him, including joining the anti-apartheid protest outside of the South African embassy. Meanwhile, Leo and Murtaugh stage a diversion in the embassy, <laughs> allowing Riggs to sneak in. He gets one important clue, though. Rudd was concerned with someone or something called the Alba Varden. Um, in the meantime, uh, Riggs starts up a romance with Rudd's secretary, Rika. However, Rudd's com Rudd completely loses his patience with the police and starts declaring open war on them. Uh, several police officers end up getting assassinated with conveniently placed bombs, much like what happened with Murtaugh. Um, after a date with Rika, uh, Rudd's men try to mur murder Riggs and Rika. This initially fails, though they do finally kill Rika. Um, Rudd's men also managed to kidnap Leo, but failed to kill Murtaugh. Um, Riggs is taken as well, and he learns that Borstead murdered his wife, and then he's placed into a straitjacket and dropped into the river to drown. Uh, Riggs escapes by dislocating his shoulder, regroups with Murtaugh, and together they rescue Leo and destroy Rudd's stilt house. After sending Leo back to the station, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh realizes that Alba Varden is a ship that Rudd has been using for smuggling. So they board the ship, find the laundered money, and then in the final sequence, Riggs gets his revenge on Borstead while Murtaugh kills Rudd in self-defense. That was a great story summary, my friend. Um, an alternate ending to the movie actually featured a Thanksgiving dinner at the Murtaugh house, uh, which was attended by both Riggs and Rika Vandenhaas. Uh, Richard Donner later decided that Rika should be killed to further fuel Riggs' hatred of the South African diplomats. Uh, with Rika dead, this entire ending had to be scrapped. Uh, this ending was filmed prior to filming some of the other scenes in the film, including most of the second half, where Riggs and Murtaugh go into the final showdown with the South Africans. Another reason why is why this ending was not used is because filmmakers weren't sure about whether or not Riggs should live or die at the end of the film. I'm really glad they just they that they didn't kill him off. I mean, it just isn't a lethal weapon without Riggs, and the series would be pretty much done with him dead. So they managed to buy time for two more films to be made by keeping Riggs alive here. Um, now, I'm a bit torn about Rika's death because she does end up getting fridged to serve Riggs' overall story, and I'm not a fan of fridging characters in general, whatever their gender. And honestly, the, the fact that uh, Vorstead murdered Riggs' wife is enough reason to root for Riggs to kill him, in addition to being a murdering racist. But at the same time, it does give Riggs a stronger personal stake in what happens in this case. You know, in watching this series over and over, I have noticed the theme of coming full circle with characters. And I think that Rika's death was part of that. 
Uh, you're right that it was not necessary, but as a writer, I get wanting to attach a very real current pain to an old wound too. It really brings back the weight of the first wound by ripping it open with a new pain. In my eyes, that connected the past to the present and brought it full circle. In Black Script, Riggs gave up his life because of his love for the Murtaugh's and other ideas were running around. Apparently, there was such indecision that Richard Donner says that they still filmed it so that they could edit the different versions of the film. One where Riggs lives and another where he dies. But they got a good response from the to the version where Riggs survives during test screenings, and so they kept that version. However, <laughs> the actual shot that they use in the film when the camera backs off them, uh, backs off to the ship and into the sunrise is the footage where was actually in the footage where Riggs dies, not from where he lives. And and that's why you'll notice that Riggs and Murtaugh don't move at all in that shot. Hmm. I don't know what else they were expecting, though. I mean, Riggs is a popular character. Nobody wants to see him dead. Still, I like that Donner is the kind of director who keeps his options open and he's willing to adjust his plan depending on what works. I imagine the constant changes have got to be frustrating for everyone involved. Every time Donner decided on the spot to do something different, lots of people had to adjust their jobs or work they had already done to account for it. That would be frustrating for me if it happened all the time, like it sounds like it did with Donner. As I mentioned in the first movie, we're watching the director's cuts of Lethal Weapon 1 through 3. So I want to take a minute to talk about how the director's cut differs from the theatrical cut in the film. Lethal Weapon 2 has three minutes of additional footage added to the film, and those scenes include one just before Riggs and Murtaugh got up to Le go up to Leo's hotel room for the first time. We see them in an indoor pool room with a spa, and Riggs decides to stop and talk to the ladies in the pool in a very flirtatious way, and the women respond favorably. This scene was important, in my opinion, too. Uh, when last we saw Riggs, he was far from looking for a relationship. But now, two years later, this scene establishes his interest in a relationship rather than just dropping him going for Rika on us. I feel like we need this scene to ease us into it. The bathroom scene was lengthened a little bit, but Murtaugh sees, uh, but Murtaugh sees the toilet hit the car in the director's cut. <laughs> that was just funny and a real bonding moment for the two characters. So I really appreciated that scene getting extended. And while we're on that note, I think the only time that Roger ever calls Riggs anything but Riggs was when he was on the toilet with the bomb. As Riggs was leaving to go get the bomb squad, Roger calls him Martin. I think that was a subtle sign of the fear in Murtaugh at that moment. Also, the the bomb in the toilet sequence was used as an early teaser trailer for the movie. The trailer ended with the toilet landing on Murtaugh's car and the voiceover announcing they're not taking any more crap. But, but back to the director's cut. There's another scene where Roger gets some info on doing some body work on his wife's new car from a mechanic, and it was good, but not really necessary, so I can see why it was expendable. The last scene that was extended was where Leo is trying to explain to Roger and Riggs where the house on the stilts is located. All Leo knows at first is that the address has to add up to nine because it was his lucky number. So there is this bit where Leo is trying to figure out what the possible address is that could be based on that sum. Riggs randomly selects a street to try first and they start looking. Right after the scene is the one in the theatrical lease where Riggs and Murtaugh and Leo are pulling up to the house. And honestly, it explains why Murtaugh says, this is the ninth possibility, Leo. And Leo says, I told you, nine. That's my lucky number. Without that scene beforehand, the dialogue when they pull up to the house makes less sense.
I remember uh, feeling like the the scene with Riggs hitting on the girls dragged on a bit. And that's probably why it was originally cut. At the same time, you're right that it's also an establishing scene that sets up the idea that Riggs has moved on and made peace with his wife's death. Maybe they could have trimmed it a bit for pacing, but I do agree that the scene has a useful purpose. Um, but once again, this shows that Donner knows his stuff as a director, and you can see how each scene expects the story as a whole. His director's cuts are typically the best versions because of scenes like these. That is certainly true of the Superman the Movies extended cut and Superman 2's the Donner cut you mentioned earlier. So I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. Something new was added to Riggs' character in Lethal Weapon 2. Riggs intentionally dislocates his shoulder twice, once to win a bet and the other time to free himself from the chains that bound him underwater. But Riggs' shoulder getting disconnected becomes a recurring event in the franchise. In Lethal Weapon 3 from 1992, which we'll talk about tomorrow, Riggs rides a motorcycle off an unfinished highway and has to pop it back and pop his shoulder back in after he busts through all that uh, wood and, and building supplies and stuff. It all came up again in Lethal Weapon 4 from 1998 when Wasing Ku, uh, Jet Li's character, dislocated both of Riggs' shoulders. It was pretty clear that the bet was foreshadowing to show how Riggs escapes from the chains later. Even in the bet scene with the straitjacket, it was a bit obvious that Riggs was going to get out by dislocating his shoulder. But the scene establishes that Riggs can do it, and it's very much a Chekhov gun uh, that sets up that he'll use the trick against the bad guys later. So it's a fair move. Um, but it's nice to know that it's a regular trick in his arsenal that he uses in later films, too. It is, and I think it's a unique character trait. I don't know of any other characters that dislocate their shoulders as part of their arsenal, except maybe Arm Fall Off Boy. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to switch gears here if we can. Uh, you know, I have thought about the, the definite changes in Riggs between the first film and the second film, and even as he changed throughout the franchise. Martin Riggs, as we discussed in the first film, started that movie completely broken and grew to find more to life and purpose in the job and a new family with Rogers family and his partner. I can't help but think of Riggs being a huge Three Stooges fan and surmise that being goofy and having fun is likely Riggs' natural state. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a serious side and doesn't get down to business when it's necessary, but I think it's a natural progression that we would see him right off the bat having a blast at work in pursuit of a perp. I think that while Riggs clearly still loves and misses his wife as he still wears the ring, we are starting to see Riggs come out of his shell. I also believe that like the catalyst for Riggs' change in part one was finding a real friend and a new family, the catalyst in part two was meeting Rika Vandenhaas and letting in that possibility of loving again after Vicky. She was his chance to not just feel well, but to feel whole again, like he felt when he was with his wife. That feeling of being whole is really impossible to explain unless you have felt it. Uh, not that Rika could ever reach that same spot that Victoria did, uh, but it was, it was a life in a part of him that was still very dark. And when he saw the light, he realized he craved it. That's what made Borstadt reveal that's what made Borstadt's reveal to Riggs that he had killed Victoria, forcing her off the road that night and that she died. And then drowning Rico was so crushing. And if you let that sink in, I think Riggs saying that he 
that they took them both and knowing that they ripped that from him really explains the rage of Riggs. And I say rage because Riggs wraps the chains he uses uh, to pull out of the stilt near the base of the stilt where it's bolted to the concrete post. The bolts plus the weight of the house on the stilt would make it impossible to yank out stilts with Riggs's truck. This to me is indicative of rage thinking. Granted, it works in the movie and, and probably the scene that requires the, the greatest suspension of disbelief in the whole franchise. Uh, but either way, there were other more practical means of destroying the house. And, and even destroying the house is over the top when he could have just killed them. That is completely irrational thinking to do, but Riggs is not thinking clearly. <laughs> he is completely blinded by the now reopened wound of Victoria's death and the very fresh death of Rika. You know Roger says that he has seen that look in Riggs' eyes before, but I don't think he has. He might have seen something similar, but Riggs straight up checked out in Lethal Weapon 2. He said he wasn't even a cop that night that and that they took them both. I, I did like that Murtaugh put away his badge before going out to meet Riggs, though. Partners till the end, man. That was awesome. Uh, but back mm. to my point, Riggs was broken by Victoria's death, and I think that he only made it out of the black hole and rage of pain because of Roger and his family. Yeah, that's certainly my take on things as well. They talk about Riggs in the first film possibly being a psycho, and the takeaway is that he isn't. Troubled and broken, maybe, but not psychotic. The Riggs we meet in the first film is in a dark and broken place, and he doesn't see much hope left. All he has is his job, and he's burned a lot of bridges even there. But because of Murtaugh and his family, Riggs is able to move on and find some peace in his life. I think you're probably right that the Riggs we see in later films is closer to who he was before his wife's death. He's a bit of a practical joker and a clown, which makes sense for somebody who's a huge Three Stooges fan. He's still crazy and unpredictable, but more in a funny way and less in an edgy or dangerous way. Rika's death hurts him quite a bit, but he manages to save Murton, so he's still got something to keep him going. Um, Riggs ends up in a stronger place by the end of this film, even after all he loses. Awesome. Sounds like we're on the same page there. Uh, so I'd like to switch over to some more general things about the plot's connection uh, to real life. Uh, several times throughout Lethal Weapon 2, Riggs willfully mispronounces the name of the villain, Arjun Rudd, as Aryan. Riggs also <laughs> refers to Pietre uh, Vorstadt, Arjun's secretary agent, as Adolf. Uh, what's funny is that the actor Derek O'Connor actually kind of looks a little bit like Hitler. <laughs> Riggs also calls Rudd, Borstead, and their associates the master race, uh, which are all obvious as obvious references to Hitler and the Nazi party white supremacist ideologies before, before and during World War II. The South African apartheid was another form of ideological white supremacy, and that is likely why Riggs made references made those references constantly. But it was not just the Riggs character. The film itself leans pretty heavily into these themes with a background nod to Nazi Germany. In the scene where Rika hands the overnight faxes to Arjun, there is a stylized eagle on the wall uh, behind him that is reminiscent of the Reichshadler which was used by the Nazis as an eagle that clutches the swastika and their symbol. You know, I'll be honest. I love that this movie pulls no punches in its condemnation of South Africa and apartheid. I think it's pretty clear that between the fridge sign in the first movie and the narrative of this film, that the creators were staunch opponents of, of what was going on in South Africa at the time. But I love that Riggs constantly trolls Rudd with the Nazi references. You get some funny lines out of it. And Russ really is a contemptible racist bastard who deserves to be mocked. Yeah. Uh, one thing one thing I want to point out, though, is that the movie's use of diplomatic immunity isn't quite accurate. 
It is true that Riggs and Murtaugh can't arrest Rudd for anything he's done because of his diplomatic status, but it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card the way that this movie tends to suggest. The U.S. government could definitely have gotten Rudd deported and sent back to South Africa if they really wanted it. The, the South African government themselves could have decided to prosecute Rudd if they wanted, and they might have done that with enough diplomatic pressure. This guy isn't exactly Dr. Doom, you know? But uh, when, when Rudd claims that the stilt house is South African soil, that's not technically true either. Um, even the South African consulate wouldn't be considered South African soil. It's still U.S. territory. It's just that the U.S. government is granting permission to South Africa to use that land for diplomatic purposes. Rudd would know that, but I could see him lying as a way of bluffing the cops, so that's fine. Um, also, my understanding of diplomatic immunity is that it's limited to certain people and contexts. So Rudd himself is immune to prosecution as well as anyone in his immediate family, but it's very possible that Riggs and Murtaugh could have arrested a good number of his staff and used that as leverage against Rudd. It would have been worth doing that simply to interrogate them. Um, I think there's also a clause that certain diplomatic staff can't be arrested if they're engaged in legitimate diplomatic purposes, but they can be arrested if they're doing something outside of their official function. Many of these people were not engaged in official diplomatic business at the time that Riggs and Murtaugh got them. Uh, certainly the guy who tried to kill Leo was not doing any official <laughs> duties at the time the cops were on to him. They had that dude dead to rights for attempted murder and resisting arrest, and he had no defense. In fact, I don't see why Riggs and Murtaugh couldn't have arrested most of those people at the still house, even if they couldn't get to Rudd himself. In addition, I can't see the U.S. government allowing what Rudd does in this movie to pass. They're involved in a major drug and money laundering operation on U.S. soil. If it was kept low-key, well, maybe that might be one thing. But Rudd essentially causes an international incident in a public and bloody way. His goons murdered American citizens, including several cops, and in a few cases with explosives. Not to mention the death of Rika, which occurred on U.S. soil and not on diplomatic territory. Uh, diplomatic immunity is not protecting him from that. I can't say for sure exactly what the outcome would be, but if I were to guess... Rudd would likely be sent home, possibly to face charges for the murder of Rika, who is a South African citizen. He may even be facing extradition to the U.S. on multiple counts of murder and possibly terrorism. And the South African government might even oblige the U.S. on the extradition of Rudd and revoke his diplomatic status, given the massive public embarrassment he caused. I get that Riggs and Murtaugh have to be the heroes here, so I have to suspend some disbelief. And I can do that because this is a good movie. But I don't believe for one minute that Rudd wouldn't be facing some serious criminal charges for his dirty business had he survived, even if the either in the U.S. or in South Africa. Riggs and Murtaugh probably did them a favor. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't just break any laws that you want to, especially not on the scale that they were doing it. Uh, and, and speaking of which, you know that the body count for Lethal Weapon 2 is 33? <laughs> And that is actually the highest body count out of the entire franchise. Not all of those kills were theirs, but I think you see what I'm saying. <laughs> I I thought that diplomatic immunity was, uh, the, the way it was portrayed in the film was a bit fishy. So I'm actually glad you looked that stuff up. Uh, but there was some there was some more real life connection with the film. Uh, the scene where Murtaugh does his free South Africa tirade, uh, his statement of one man, one boat, did in fact actually become part of the then South African president FD, FWD clerk's uh, agenda to end apartheid, lift the ban on African National Congress, and the film protesters outside of South African consulate actually had an ANC flag, and released Nelson Mandela from incarceration. Danny Glover played Nelson Mandela in the H in the 
film made for HBO uh, Mandela in 1987, which was actually filmed prior to the re release of the first Lethal Weapon movies. Oh, man. The, the free South Africa scene is so hilarious. And the setup to that scene is so good. Uh, Joe Pesci does a good job in setting up the joke with the idea that he has a friend who's he's talking out of moving to South Africa. And the friend he's talking about turns out to be Murtaugh. <laughs> Danny Glover plays it up for all it's worth, too. And you get some really funny lines out of the whole scene. The reaction he gets out of the South African official are hilarious as well. But, but you're black. <laughs> Still, I'm glad I'm glad it had some good real world effects from it though. Um, even if it was set up as comedy. I mean, it, it goes it goes to show how good powerful uh good comedy or satire can be if it lands just right, and it was here. <laughs> Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, we are in agreement there. Uh, that scene is hilarious. And, and at the same time, it is very cool that it was connected to the struggle with that line. Um, but that wraps up part one of our 36th anniversary discussion on Lethal Weapon. Check back with the in myth with us tomorrow to hear about Lethal Weapon 3 and 4. But until then, I'd like to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.